Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. Wherever the heck in the world you are, it is the one and only notorious, glorious V, the Grill Economist, coming to you live with my main man, El Cuco, working the airwaves, making sure the broadcast coming out crispy and clean. You know what I mean? Check us out, roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Rogue News on every single podcast. And we're on YouTube for about like five to ten minutes. We have with us a man who needs no introduction. If you don't know who he is, you've been living under a rock. It is the one and only prolific brain trust. Matthew Errett. Matthew Errett is here. You can find him over at CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org, as well as the RisingTideFoundation.net, which is the Library of Alexandria on all things geopolitical, geostrategic, and geohistoric. Go check it out. Subscribe also to his Substack, and when you sign up, you will be alerted to when Matthew and his wife Cynthia, they do weekly symposiums on a whole range of topics, deconstructing history and giving you the play-by-play of what happened in the past and how it pertains to today and most importantly make sure you get the books it is so vital that you understand the system that you're fighting for it is the american system the modular multipolar american system that was birthed in 1776 read all about it in matthew's book an unfinished symphony volumes one and two and with that being said cj matthew Gentlemen, how are you guys? Hey, well, how's it going, listen, Harry ha- uh, Harry Hackinen, he's um, one of the listeners here, right? Mm. He said, good morning, Banana Stan. I thought that was ingenious. I am now renaming all of us in the Collective West as Banana Stanians. <laughs> <laughs> I am a Banana Stanian, so good morning and good evening. Good afternoon to all my fellow Banana Stanians throughout the Collective West. Yes, what a great way to start. And speaking of banana standings, man, you got a lot to cover. There's lots going on, so take us where where even angels fear to tread, my friend. Well, since uh, some of the demonic forces that we're going to be discussing uh, are not allowed to be spoken of on YouTube, that'll have to wait for later. Um, yes. But I think that, um, you know, there, there's just so much going on right now. And I mean, the, the, the safe part of this conversation, I think, can deal with some of the... the um, historical forces. And I mean, you, you know, you, you had a little screenshot of my, uh, my Substack and the Canadian Patriots site. I, I really appreciate those little plugs. Um, and I do hope that people do read the book or the book series uh, on the Clash of the Two Americas. One of the Volume key- three has just come out, right? Volume three has just come out. That's correct. Yeah. Awesome. Got to get it. And uh, Cynthia's working on a, on a new book as well on uh, counterintelligence operations in the United States and the purging of Ooh. US politics, which, um, I mean, th- there used to be an actual serious American intelligence um, service going back to the American Revolution without the which there could not have been an American Revolution. You know, the right. espionage, counterintelligence, triple agents, people who died uh, with their their comrades thinking that they were traitors to the American cause were their entire time, as we've discovered looking through archival work, um, tr- the, the most solid patriots, the most noble people who actually, you know, sacrificed their reputations and really so much more in order to get that type of information to the the, um, the the revolutionaries when they needed it the most by infiltrating and acting like they were they were traitors. So, I mean, there, there's so much to history, which gives you a better appreciation for the nuance 
that is shaping the fight today over a multipolar system. And the idea, you know, I, I like the the banana, <laughs> the Republic of Bananistan. Um, the I will love the Republic. That's even better. The <laughs> Republic of Bananistan. But the, the fact that we're turning into a banana republic in the West, I mean, a lot of people have this misconception that it is the United States, which is this global empire, which is just out to kind of like, you know, this, this unidimensional orc out to subdue and destroy anything good for its evil agenda to rape and pillage and exploit. But it's like, this is such a cartoonish and foolish idea when you actually look at this longer wave of history and the expulsion, the destruction of the patriotic traditions, the killing of JFK, the, the destruction of the OSS, right? The, how, how did the British create the Cold War? How did they set up the CIA? How did, they, how did the British organize the state of Israel? How did they set up Mossad? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm staying within the safety zone here for YouTube. But they did. <laughs> this is a provable. You can go to Wikipedia. Yep. Um, the Saudi, the House of Saud as well, and Saudi intelligence. All of these things were set up in the 30s by British intelligence. So why is it that people think that the British Empire is no longer a force when you consider what was behind the arguments that got us into the Iraq War that came out of 10 Downing Street and GCHQ? It wasn't Colin Powell that invented the yellow cake uh, story. Correct. This was coming out of people like Sir Richard Dearlove, who was heading MI6, that generated this intel that was then used as a dodgy dossier to justify hell on earth in the Middle East, um, and so much more. So there, there's there's a major fight, and the fact that the U.S. has been stripped and turned into a banana republic is, I think, a good sign that it wasn't the U.S. in charge of anything. The actual institutions that gave rise to anything good, that allowed for the U.S. to enjoy the highest standards of living and highest productive powers of labor for the longest time were stripped down. The U.S. has become less capable of governance, of self-government. The population has never been more annihilated. And they've never had more enemies that want to destroy the United States, right? So who really benefited? And that's the answer to that question is you can only get it when you realize that the British Empire, as it was understood before 1946, as the primary you know, agency of global evil for hundreds of years never went away. It didn't disappear. It's still the same, ultimately the different, different form, different coloring, different, same smell though, of the same British empire that's used its agencies within the United States, its fifth columnists, um, <clears throat> and that have stripped the U.S. from its historical roots as a multipolar nation. You know, when you read Alexander Hamilton, you read Benjamin Franklin, you look at the topography, topography of the fight, of the world of 1776 to 1783. And then again, throughout the 19th century, America was fundamentally premised around a multipolar conception and its right. banking system was tied primarily to the idea of long-term development and real world values. Yep. Absolutely. That's what Matt, we want. hold yep. that thought right there, folks. We are going to switch over right now from, from YouTube Directly to Twitch, on we're gonna be live on Twitch, live on D Live, live on Facebook, live on Twitter, and also on RogueNews.com. So if you're on YouTube, you're listening to us, uh, come right over. And this uh, broadcast will be posted later on Rumble. A lot of people asking why we're not live on Rumble. Uh, Rumble actually, we we're actually charged in order for us to keep the bandwidth and the type of videos that we do in long form. Uh, it will, they will charge us about $12,000 a year to to be live on Rumble, which I think is kind of egregious. But, you know, hopefully they'll lower that price. It's just not worth it for us to do that now. But uh, come on over, folks. Water's great over at Twitch, DLive, uh, Facebook, Alive, um, Twitter, and, of course, RogueNews.com. With that being said, CJ, flip us over, brother. All right, go for it. Perfect. Maddie, you are now free and unbridled and uncensored. Go for it. Ah, okay. All right. I mean, maybe uh, maybe this will it might be safe. Who knows what I'm gonna say? But I, I I don't I don't really fully plan out. I have some general ideas of points that that I want to make, and I know you guys have uh, are pretty flexible too. But obviously, right now we're coming into a, a point where the 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 the, the the lay of the land is very, very clearly defined around whether or not we're going to have a new system which is going to be tied to, um, 
Well, let me just say it this way. We're going to get a new system. It will be tied to physical parameters of value. That That is going to happen. The, the system that we've known since especially 1971 and the floating of the U.S. dollar has been a system that has been tied to no physical parameters of value except for the increasing rates of different forms of securitized debts of any type of variety that were not tied in any way to the real world and were more, more tied to the uh, fluctuating behavior of the spot markets, the futures markets, the increased uh, types of creative financial instruments that were put online by Ellen Greenspan or really normalized that involved junk bonds, crap debts that are not, you would have gone to jail for, for dealing with junk bonds before 1987. And then afterwards they were normalized, turned into increasingly different types of derivatives that were, you know, basically people insured these things, started gambling on the price of what they thought they were. Anyway, it got really crazy to the point that today the world system is a, is a time bomb which has a bit of two factors going at the same time, which we've never seen before. We have both the um, the inflationary fact, uh, factor, that is naturally what happens when you just print money out of thin air to bail out too big to fail banks. Naturally, money loses value. And I mean, this is part of the Jackson Hole, you know, one of the main topics. I didn't fully go through all of the the discussions that happened at Jackson Hole, the Central Bankers Conference. I know you you guys have been discussing this. But, you know, they made a high priority on reducing inflation um, by increasing increasing the interest rates. This is insane. Well, but, Matt, you, you, yeah. you have to understand by, you know, by printing even more money and spending hundreds of billions of dollars in Ukraine. And now we're, you know, fomenting a, a, a fight in the South China Seas and, and then bailing out students that like makes like inflation disappear, man. Apparently, yeah, apparently you don't have to really do anything. <laughs> you could shut down the basis, the entire economy, uh, shut down the entire consumer market, make sure that people can't afford to even take out a loan or anything uh, to start a business or maintain their business or just pay their, their, you know, gas bills or uh, whatever else they need to pay for uh, the coming winter. You make sure that none of that can happen. And instead, yeah, pour tons of fuel on Ukraine, in the forms of billions of dollars. Um, you got this insanity all over Europe too. I mean, Britain just put out two point five billion dollars for uh, military aid in Ukraine. Meanwhile, you know, I, I was just reading how one out of four adults in Britain are basically saying that they're going to try to go for the entirety of winter with no heating. Um, one out of four adults. I mean, I don't know how many kids, how many older people are going to be going through that, but I was just reading how, you know, um, there's a. a, a one in four, there's also a four times more uh, greater likelihood of dying of cold than of heat every year. People die of both in the summertime and in the wintertime. Yep. It's a four times uh, more likely chance of dying by um, cold. That's what old people die from when they can't afford, especially gas, heating, other things, which is just skyrocketed. In some cases in Europe, a thousand times more uh, percentage points, more more than it was same time last year. Um, so you're... It's it's just wildly absurd, absurd, absurd. What? Who says it that way? Absurd. Zelensky applies for forty billion dollars student loan. <laughs> you know, my, uh, many people are, are identifying their mortgages right now are uh, as student loans. <laughs> right. I, I remember seeing a meme of like Nancy Pelosi calling up her husband, saying, "Quick, take out a student loan now." There's <laughs> still time. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there you go. Paul, are you out of jail yet? Take out many student loans as you can ASAP. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. No, so I mean, you know, the amount of myopic, um, you, you've got these these idiots just trying to get whatever they can and just like steal from the coffers in the Titanic while the life rafts are, are like right there unused. There's so many ways to get to save lives in this collapsing system. And these idiots, all they can do is just double down on their greed and myop myopic, you know, psychopathy and uh, and not think ahead. So the, the Jackson Hole thing regarding the increase of increasing the, the, the rates, this is going to have a huge effect because internationally, other central banks who are also there are going to be doing the same thing because if they don't increase their rates while the U.S. increases their interest rates, well, they're going to have a massive... Um, you know, they're going to take a huge hit because people in their own, their, their nations are going to find it more in, you know, um, advisable 
to um, get rid of their dollar holdings. If you got dollar holdings of rupee or rupee holdings or yuan uh, holdings or anything else, you're going to want to get rid of that. If the if they offer if their countries, India or China or others, offer lower interest rates than the United States does, you're going to sell them and then buy U.S. higher interest rates so you can get more return. So that's going to cause a big problem. So every central banker is now being forced to recalibrate. That's going to cause even more of a contraction of available money for the real economy. And meanwhile, there's no discussion at Jackson Hole or any other place around actually doing what people like Alexander Hamilton provably did to create real economic recoveries or Abraham Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt or John F. Kennedy, which was when you have a crisis, you don't just spend money arbitrarily, but you have to increase the buying power of the dollar through rational, scientific, I mean, this is a form of science, but you have to think about how do you invest in new technology, new R&D that increase the productive powers of labor, both in agriculture and in industry. You want to have better forms of energy. Any, You need to create abundance if you want the, the power of a dollar to go further, to have more power like it did in the 70s when one, you know, one um, worker was able to, with his paycheck, support a family of three, four, five kids in the 1960s and 70s, um, and then have enough for savings, for a vacation, for a car, for other things. That was, it wasn't that, you know, they were earning more money. It's just that the quality of the overall economy in which that, that worker was located was so much more productive that the buying power, power of a dollar was more. You know, minimum wage was like $2 in, in the 19, late 1960s. I think it was even less than that. And, you, you, you need to stop making yeah. people reminisce of the good old days. You have to understand, listen, the age of abundance has to come to an end. Okay? We have to make necessary sacrifices to to stop Vladov Putler. Vladov Putler needs to be stopped. And yeah. this is why that the age of abundance, that you know, you're not allowed to take cold showers anymore, Matthew, not in Europe. It's not going to happen. You better either, if you're in Poland, get online, get, get some coal. If you're in Germany, start going outside, start breaking twigs and branches and getting some wood together. And if you're in Italy, try to get as much bread as, as you possibly can because you're about to starve. But the age of abundance is over. This is their solution. And I find it hilarious. And it all goes back to what you're saying, Matt. I know. No, and they're they're actually pushing, like you said, they're they're doing energy rationing in in France, which has I don't even understand that where where they have like seventy eight percent nuclear power, and yet despite that, I think that they have to still export their their excess nuclear energy to other states now that have they're retarded just are are just shooting themselves in the kneecaps. So now they're putting <laughs> their own population, which you'd think would be the most energy secure, into a situation where they have to ration. They're also facing massive spikes. Of energy prices, um, all that because you didn't want to have things like Russian gas, Russian coal, Russian liquid natural gas, and uh, we, you know, Ursula Ursula van der Leyen even said back in May that this was going to happen. This is going to hurt a lot of people. She even said that, and she's like, "But we have to do it, and so we will do it." <laughs> you know, um, this is the very opposite of what economics is about. Economics should be about creating more with less effort. And that's the whole principle of oh, what do you got there? Absolutely disgusting. Pubs and restaurants warn of closures as energy bills rocketing to 9,000 pounds a month. Yeah, like something like 60% I was reading of uh, uh, pubs or uh, yeah, pubs and restaurants in uh, the UK are saying that they will likely have to shut down operations because they won't be able to afford those types of energy bills that are, I mean, magnitudes more than anything we've ever seen. So you're you're consciously shutting down the economy. And this was totally foreseeable early on when they shut down Nord Stream 2. You knew that there was going to be a, a scarcity. When they went and they, they started pushing the same thing, they knew what was going to happen in Nord Stream 1, um, which is already, you know, it's, it's that's, forget about it. Russian, Russian gas and oil is basically not, uh, not going to be going pretty soon to any, anything in Europe. All because these insane sanctions, they knew that. And they know that when you do fertilizer bans, when you try to shut down nitrogen fertilizers, you know that that's going to create a scarcity in food production. So the, the effect of all of these things was always known. And that's why I was saying at the very beginning, there will be a new system. It's just, will this new system be premised? And it will be based upon real metrics in the real world of value. That's going to happen. But where the green new dealers 
who are trying to manage the controlled demolition of the last, you know, 1971 to, to present banking order, that's going to, they're trying to manage the obvious demolition of that. They want to try to stay in control of that chaos. The system that they want to bring online is tied to a new set of monetary values where you can have money. It will exist in the form of central bank digital currencies and other forms of nasty social credit scores tied to your ability to do what? Reduce your carbon you know, emissions impact, your methane impact on nature, your what's called the carbon footprint. So to the degree to which the carbon footprints of nations and of people as individuals, collectives, cities, states, federal governments, as well as nations as a whole that they want. And when I say they, I'm talking about the same sociopathic technocrats we always talk about. The same structure that they want to try to impose on the world is sort of like replacement to the UN Charter, a sort of greening of the UN Charter. This is what was done with the Atlantic, uh, the uh, Biden, um, Bojo, New Atlantic Charter that, that was signed, which basically calls for a global greening of the world um, under enforceable top-down mechanisms above nation states that can enforce the quota, uh, the quota targets of how much emissions you're going to reduce by 2050 or beyond. Same thing for the amount of like land that you're going to be taking out of cultivation of agriculture or cattle, because the current policy of the you know Agenda 2030 idea is. 30% of global land use will be removed and turned into protective nature reserves, even if it is for currently being used for agriculture. So this idea is what will, on the one hand, certain assholes do want this concept to define the behavior of money. And the more uh, returns you get on your investment will be tied to the rate at which you reduce the impact of human life on the earth. In it, and so what's what's around that? It's the idea that the, the, the more you can lower your global population through lowering the means of supporting people, the greater the returns will be for those who carry out business on whatever that, that looks like under this stakeholder capitalism view of uh, the world order. Again, that's the very opposite of ec economy. When you look at Alexander Hamilton, you read his writings, which... which Anybody can do this. He, this is a person who's gotten a lot of bad publicity over the years for obvious reasons. He's probably one of the most slandered personalities in history, along with Lincoln, who was deploying Hamilton's principles under his greenback system. There's a reason why these people have been so slandered and thousands of books have been written to try to skew the actual nature of the fight, which both men operated within in their own time, separated by 80 years, which is that... The principle of economics that both of them put forth and fought for, which is today the, the, the heart of the global battle over what's, which system is going to come out on top after the current collapse hits, it is premised around the increase of the power of productivity by increasing the power of mental activity of the individuals. More people, more value. Why? Because that's more problem solvers, more opportunities for discoveries, inventions, and applying those inventions in the form of new techniques for increasing your productive powers. So the idea of the economy of nature, which has been before the 20th century, a better understood idea. There is an idea of a nature is not the static, you know, cold world universe of cold mechanical laws with like objects floating in empty space, pulling out, pushing and pulling on things based upon, you know, some Newtonian inverse square rules that you learn as mathematical formula. That is an incompetent idea of the universe. The better idea of the universe that it, you could see very clearly in the minds of the best political economists is that there is an economy of nature, that all of the universe, that space-time itself, the very fabric of space-time is not cold. It's not full of empty space with objects. It is filled with a, with a life force that the universe itself expresses a quality of creative vitality, a, which you would see in a life force, not a dead force. The force of death is what you, you see with the, the cosmology of an ecologist, a radical ecologist, which views that, you know, the natural order of things is static, that nature is desiring to always fall into equilibrium. You always want to make your mathematical, you know, systems balance. And so in, in, in that worldview, anytime you build infrastructure and anytime human, the human mind goes and improves the, the means of production such that you can have more people at a higher quality of life, 
That's bad. That is unnatural. And it has to be shut down because it is unnatural. The real idea of nature is that, no, nature is itself always moving in a creative way such that you can go from low-level single-celled amoebas 500 million years ago, which is all there was. Life was very boring on the earth to the point that now, you know, not that long, I mean, the future in, in the grand scheme of things, we have, you know, super complex systems with human beings communicating over electricity via satellites and space and light speed, you know, I mean, like the, um, the directed ev creative evolutionary flow of life, even before human beings entered the scene was visceral. So life wants to be in dynamic disequilibrium. It wants to create, it wants to go beyond its limits. Otherwise you never would have had photosynthesis appear, right? Nature would have been bounded by, by deeper constraints. So we always have that. We have the ability of life to always create based upon a variety of conditions, atomic and galactic, uh, you know, new technologies. And I just want to do a share screen here. So I got a little, uh, a couple of quick little slides that I wanted to, uh, oops, that I wanted to just uh, share slides, share screen. Let's do share screen. Yeah, okay, share screen. Windows. There we are. You guys can see the uh, ugly mug of uh, Maury Strong? Yep. May he rest in pieces. Yes. So the first thing, to understand Maury Strong, one of the worst uh, poisons Canada ever produced onto the world. Um, guys from Saskatchewan. It's weird. Um, but this guy was also tied to the rock. He was discovered early on to be a, a young little sociopath and was recruited by an operation tied to David Rockefeller. Yeah, it was David Rockefeller. Um, and he went on to be given some assignments in his 20s to become CEO of various mining coal oil companies in Canada. And then quickly became the vice president, the world's youngest vice president of Power Corporation, which had a near monopoly on all energy infrastructure in Quebec. Um, this guy then became one of the key figures who selected Pierre Elliott Trudeau, along with Walter Lockhart Gordon, one of the key figures who himself was working closely with the roundtable movement in Canada that reorganized all of the Canadian accounting systems to better accommodate the, um, the, the drug banks in the Cayman Islands, like Scotiabank, CIBC, all of these banks that have been doing offshore money laundering since the, I mean, th th this goes back to the forties. These were all done under the control of people like Walter Lockhart Gordon, liberal party controller. Um, Maury Strong worked very closely with this guy. Maury Strong was the founder of the, of the Canadian International Development Corporation, which basically controlled all foreign aid to poor countries in the 1960s. He started running this thing. Um, he was a, a privy counselor for the queen, um, for, the, for the crown. And he ran this thing in such a way that at the point when there was still back in the 60s when he was doing this, an, an idea that we want to help poor countries that had been abused by colonialism. We want to help them industrialize, leapfrog, develop into the 20th century and beyond with modern technology. That was the, the spirit of JFK, was the spirit of John Diefenbaker here in Canada. It was the spirit of people like Charles de Gaulle in France, of uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the assassinated uh, UN Secretary General. That was generally the ethic, was that, the, the, that economics should be about helping nations have liberty, ha help people have the freedom to not have to suffer in want of start or in fear of starvation or in wars, right? That was always the idea was human, the human mind when being natural would be able to deploy economic systems to cure us of these man-made ills, which other people like Maury Strong, who was a Neo-Malthusian or Malthus, the originator of this idea, asserted were actually gifts nature gives us. Wars, pandemics, plagues, these are things that nature gives the elites to control and manage the human talking cows. That's a very different philosophy. So one of the things that Maury Strong was looking at, and I have two quotes, just to get across, because this guy was really more than a lot of people realize. He was a, really the godfather of the Great Reset as we know it. The fact of energy, there's a science of energy, and it's very much tied to the per capita energy use and quality of life of people. And just like you have a very basic graph produced by the United Nations Development Program, what you see is obviously the case where you have low energy. And this is a few years ago. This is from 2015. 
before Ethiopia's uh, Grand Renaissance Dam began produce, producing electricity, which is, it's just begun doing. So Ethiopia today would be a, lo a lot higher. India would be higher because they've done good work um, on their energy systems, but they, they still have a long way to go. But as you could still clearly see, that the higher the use of per capita energy, the higher, obviously, <laughs> will be your adult literacy, your life expectancies, your school enrollment, your GDP per capita, right? So this is just something that is an obvious correlation. Energy, per capita energy use, and overall, I would add, based on the, the studies of Lyndon LaRouche, the overall um, energy uh, throughput of a society as a whole is very much tied to your ability to sustain people at a certain given quality of life, not just quantity, but also quality. They go together. And the, the oligarchy has used this knowledge in a very, very dubious way. So you can't just tell people commit mass suicide because we have to lower population levels to what our computer models say is natural of maybe a billion. That's what our computer models have had as a consensus. You can't just say commit suicide to satisfy our, our computers. What they did say, however, and they came up with this idea around Maury Strong's time after a lot of um, meetings run by former eugenicists uh, that had been uh, supporting Nazism and eugenics more broadly in the 1930s and 40s, they basically had these ideas in the 1950s and 60s that, okay, we're going to tell people that the effects of industrial en energy use are killing the environment. So any time, and then we'll say, it's, it's not we're, that we're overpopulated. It's not that we have too many people. It's that we use too many, too many bad sources of energy that are causing global warming to happen was the, um, the phrasing that was selected. So insidious. Yeah. And the computer models that they started creating in the, in the late 60s, because computer, computer technology became advanced enough that they could begin at plugging in more variables, they made sure that whatever the outcome would be, that you whatever the data sets you put in would always result in outcomes that had would conclude that agriculture and industrial activity, and one of the main, major effects of both is carbon dioxide when you burn things, um, or increasingly nitrogen or methane emissions that come from, from agriculture, will be will just tie it to temperature changes in the atmosphere. Any type of data that disproves that or does not agree with that, we're going to ignore. We're not going to put into our data sets. And then we're going to get people's human minds. We're going to pour tons of money into key educational institutions and only allow for the publication of papers, peer-reviewed studies that also corroborate those conclusions we want to have turned into a consensus. And even if we the majority of climate scientists still disagree we're going to ignore them and just say that an anonymous body of 72 or, or 80 to, um, which is what it is, um, anonymous people are agree as a consensus and we'll call that the 97% uh, of experts agree that CO2 man-made. It's incredible, man. It, oh. it, 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 it's, it's such, I, I mean, if somebody takes like five minutes to look into the, the utter bullshit that this entire scam is nothing but a a, a Malthusian neo feudalistic wealth extraction scheme. That's all it is. At the it's such a cheap ploy. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And one of the key things what what Strong did as he was the the head of the um, the Canadian International Development Agency and and he had colleagues in the United States who were doing the same thing, converting U.S. aid into the same operation. He's, he he basically said, okay, we're gonna start creating a new type of category of international investment called appropriate technologies, green energy uh, um, infrastructure, which is the only thing, we'll, we'll call it appropriate because when poor countries who don't have industry are going to be given money from us for aid, they're going to want to use it to build. We know that they're going to want to use it foolishly to, to build um, actual energy to solve their people's problems that might involve them utilizing the coal or gas or other things under the soil of Africa or Burma or Myanmar or South America, wherever. There's a lot of resources under their soil. A lot of it is stuff they would want to use and the money we give them, they might want to use it to mine and then use it to, you know, provide electricity for their people or running water. That would be bad. And so that's, that's inappropriate technologies that, if they want to do things like that, we'll label that inappropriate. However, like nuclear power, um, that's inappropriate because it would change their natural uh, 
tribal ecosystems too much that it would be inappropriate for them to do that. Whereas in this Darwinian gradualistic interpretation of geopolitics, they said, leaps don't happen. There will be no leapfrogging. We only have to do things in a gradualistic way. So what will not impact their behavior as tribal people who are underdeveloped, maybe with, you know, a, a, a three and four child death rate before the age of three um, is windmills, solar panels. Those are those will be okay. We'll call that appropriate technology. The fact is, when you actually look at this graph here, windmills and solar panel uh, energy will keep the per capita energy use of any country stupid enough to embrace that at such a, a, a low level that the blue curve that indicates the actual increase of the quality of the life of the people will never be able to increase beyond a very, very low glass ceiling forever. Not only that, it is a war on nature itself because when you spread windmills, and especially when you spread solar panels all over uh, the topography of a land, you, you need a lot of this stuff. I mean, the amount of land use uh, needed to get an equivalent amount of uh, electricity that you would get from like, let's say a hydroelectric dam that gives you two gigawatts of electricity that you would get from solar panels is on a factor of something like a thousand times more land area. And the quality again of the energy itself is lower. So that land area is going to be hotter because all of that, the, the, the covering, if people see the images of like <laughs> huge, huge regions covered with, with uh, photovoltaic cells, as far as the eye can see, that gets about five, four to five um, degrees hotter than at your average uh, forest area, which is cooler because you have more plant life that breathes, that you have biorespiration of plants, right? So it, it more cloud coverage, that means more cooling. And in these, these other areas, solar panel areas, you create deserts, you create more heating, more desertification, less cloud coverage, more suns, uh, light coming through and again, killing more of, uh, of nature, which normally is good if you actually have a proper, if you don't have just clear cutted, you know, rainforest, for example, if you clear cut a rainforest, like we did for the Amazon, you create an undue amount of unnecessary heating because you don't get the natural cloud coverage. Um, so all of these things are, are stuff that Maury Strong brought online. Um, at the same time as he was co-founding the World Economic Forum, with Klaus Schwab. And Klaus Schwab even says at Maury Strong's 2015 memorial that Strong himself was a co-founder of this thing. He often is removed back because he says so many crazy things throughout his long, nasty career that is scary, which I'm going to read two things. So they try to usually write him out of this history, but it comes out. He was actually there on the ground setting it up. And, uh, and he did a lot more. But let's just, I just want to read two things. The first one you guys have seen this uh, this crazy quote from 1990 at an interview you did for West Magazine. Yeah, this one, I, this one, I, I, I'm familiar with. Okay, I mean, God, he's just, he's giving it away to you, all of us, right there. The first totally. line, <laughs> right there. What if a small and he's talking about a book he wants to write featuring Davos, the world yeah. leaders convening together at at the World Economic Forum. That's the setting of the book that he wants to write, and he's talking to the interviewer as if this is just a fiction scenario saying, what if a small group of world leaders were to conclude that the principal risk to the earth comes from the actions of the rich countries? And if the world is to survive, those rich countries would have to sign an agreement reducing their impact on the environment. Will they do it? The group's conclusion is no. The rich countries will not do it. They won't change. So, in order to save the planet, the group decides... Isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrial civili industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility <laughs> to bring that about? Boom. There it is. Boom. Right there. And people often say, oh, but, you know, they, they apologize for him. And they say, oh, that was just fiction. He didn't really mean it. And, of course, they're just ignoring the, the his life's work going back to the 60s. Just ignore it. Just, you know, they, they just say, okay, it's just, it's just a, amusing. Well, look what he did after he was the key organizer of the Rio UN Population Summit on uh, on the environment in 1992, 20 years after he chaired the first UN Population and Environment Summit in 1972 in uh, Stockholm, which brought you know the Club of Rome computer models into the United Nations for the first time. He also was the one who initiated bringing in the Club of Rome computer models like around the limits to growth into the World Economic Forum, which is where they were featured in the third 
annual meeting of the, the of Davos. And all of this normalized something that everyone had formerly known was absurd. You cannot model human population with closed linear computer models. Human beings are nonlinear when we're being creative. We don't have the same constraints as a computer. That was uh, that was the wisdom before this this psychological coup d'état of the world that brought in a, a neo-Malthusian revival around Henry Kissinger, you know, the Trilateral Commission, which were also neo-Malthusians working with David Rockefeller again um, in the 70s. This was this was a new, absurd, cold, they called it wisdom, but this was a new Satanism that was brought in to try to say that human beings and computers are pretty much the same thing, and that's why you can map one with the other. So look what he says. Two years later, after the first crazy, it's our responsibility to bring industrial civilizations to collapse to save nature. He gives the opening keynote address at Rio and he says, industrialized countries have developed and benefited from the unsustainable patterns of production and consumption, which have produced our present dilemma. It is clear that current lifestyles and consumption patterns of the affluent middle class involving high meat intake, consumption of large amounts of frozen and convenience foods, the use of fossil fuels, appliances, home and workplace air conditioning, and suburban housing are not sustainable. A shift is necessary towards lifestyles less geared to environmentally damaging consumption patterns. I mean, I, I mean you implement this. We're already seeing a 42% jump in the amount of people that are dying between the ages of 18 and 52. And granted, that has to do with some of it with the jab, but also with the you know medical things and all this other stuff and the, and the psychological impact. Imagine trying to decarbonize and deindustrialize human society as a whole, Western society as a whole. You're talking about tens of millions of people dead, starvation, dehydration, lack of medication, uh, rioting, violence. This is a bad idea, man, and they don't care. No, exactly. And that's why it's really important to look at like what it is that people like Maury Strong and his ilk who have been trained to think like him, what what freaks them out is the fact that when you actually look at the hard data of what actual major infrastructure, when it's properly being built around a conception of desalinating water, of moving um, water diversion projects like we see in India and in China, especially these are the two most active nations in the world right now around by this type of massive mega projects. Um, the effect of that, and it, which also involves, by the way, increasing carbon dioxide, which both of those countries have broken all of the quotas that would, had been attempted to be imposed from all of the COP summits, from COP 14 all the way up to COP 26, 27 this year. Um, all of those binding carbon reduction quotas have been destroyed because India, China, especially those two, but a lot of African countries, a lot of the allies of the BRI orientation, Russia, have all disagreed. They basically said, we're not going to commit mass suicide by signing on to these um, reduction protocols. And instead, they need them to use them to end poverty, which they've been doing quite well. When you look at the actual demographic trends over the past 20 years of both countries, you have a massive increase of higher standards of living, quality of life, per capita energy use, and per capita power of productivity of the people of these, of these nations. Now, one of the other effects is there's more green NASA satellites starting in 2019 started bringing back data using new devices, new uh, scanning mechanisms that would allow you to better measure the amount of biomass on the Earth. And they found that unlike all of the computer models that had forecast that by now we would have a reduction of biomass due to the supposed heating of the uh, the greenhouse, we've seen the very opposite thing happen. And in fact, there has been principally because of China and and, and India who are carrying the, the, the weight of this activity. Um, a vast increase of upwards of 10% increased biomass over the past 20 plus years, specifically through economic activity, greening of forests or greening of deserts, uh, desert reclamation, um, all of these, these things. China is building the biggest water project called the Move South Water North project as we speak with the first two phases already having been completed. And the, la the last phase will be completed in I think about 20 years which is going to basically transform the Gobi Desert or much of it into a green oasis. Um, similar projects are being also looked at very seriously in Africa, things like the Trans-Aqua project um, in the Gulf states in the Middle East. There's a lot of projects to do very similar things, especially around nuclear desalination, which China is helping massively um, with every nation, especially Saudi Arabia, who's looking at 
uh, nuclear desalination. China's helping um, the Saudis because Saudi Arabia is a big trophy. People think of Saudi Arabia as this often, you know, one dimensional basket case tool of the empire to fund Wahhabism um, and spread chaos and, you know, and, and just basically stay oil, uh, an oil mongering, um, you know, religious fanatic zone. The fact is, Saudi Arabia realizes that they have no role to play in the the Green New World Order. And China has worked very hard, Russia has worked very hard, but especially China, at persuading successfully Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states like the UAE to adopt a much more sane um, foreign policy, security policy, economic policy that's much more in harmony with their actual self-interest by building things like serious infrastructure, Um just quick here, this is a quick image of a couple of the BRI products. You know, China, Xi Jinping will be in Saudi Arabia. And uh, they announced probably within a week or two. I'm not too sure the exact date, but Xi Jinping is going to Saudi Arabia. And um, they already have, China has $40 billion of BRI-related investments being built up already in Saudi Arabia. They have built up a north-south rail system that was finished in 2015. And on top of that, you have... Um, what's called the Persian Gulf Red Sea 2,700 kilometer rail line, high speed, that is all GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council nations have agreed to, to this thing. It will be built, at which point you'll, you will be able to easily have uh, lines going north into Egypt and south into Yemen. And there is currently a, a ceasefire holding that's been going on for several months now between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um which now that Iran is being brought back into play, right, this is super important because without Iran being in a position of cooperation, Saudi Arabia and Iran are historic enemies. They've been, you know, pitted at each other's throats. But because Iran has been brought into play as a core node within the Belt and Road Initiative, both Russia and China have massive, massive integrative policies on economic and security issues and many other things with Iran. They are now in a situation where um, there's a new set of inter broader rules around the multipolar alliance setting the tone and creating situations that would be would have been impossible without the Russia-China alliance. So if Iran could be brought in as a, um, a, a partial mediator or into the negotiations with the Yemenis, you could easily see the sorts of projects that have been postponed to connect rail down south through Yemen which could then easily uh, extend 28 kilometers across the um, the little Red Sea Strait here into Djibouti, where there's a massive port. 30% of the world's uh, shipping traffic moves through here already. But now if you have a lane passageway going through, like an actual bridge, um, the, the engineering and feasibility studies have largely been done back in 2009 by a Saudi company. Forgot the name. But this would be a $200 billion project which would create new cities along the way. Um, you would be able to, according to the studies that I had seen, and again, this got sabotaged because of the Arab Spring, and then it got completely buried with the uh, the Yemeni-Saudi uh, war. But <clears throat> if this were revived under this new type of geometry, this could extend easily into an already existent Ethiopia to Djibouti or Djibouti to um, Addis Ababa rail line, which China has built up. It just finished in 2017. Um, this would connect easily and it will connect into Rwanda, into Congo, into Sudan. There's already lines being built doing that and into broader, um, there's actually one image of it, the, uh, what's called the bridge of the horn of Africa. That's the, uh, the project that was, uh, sabotaged by the Arab spring. That's something which would really create a durable, uh, trust building process. Cause you're not going to be, there's 500 million people. Uh, sorry, 500,000 people who were killed in Yemen over the past seven years of fighting. This is a lot of injustice and evil that was done. And it's not going to be a, a healing that happens quickly, but you cannot have any healing if you don't think multi-generationally about these types of big projects that would start getting all sides to work together on projects that were going to benefit their kids and grandkids. So this sort of thing is vital. In just to take one step out here, right? These, these Matt, are, real, real quick. Yeah. You, you, could you go back to the previous map you had? This one or that one? Yeah, that one right there. The, the next one. The, perfect. Look at Djibouti. Not that one. The next one. That one right there. If you look at Djibouti, right, we know that there's a Chinese uh, military base there, rightfully so. Yeah. Yemen is a major trade partner of China. 54% of 
Yemeni's trade goes directly to China. China's been a trading partner and heavily invested in Yemen since 1954 or 53. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole deal. You look at the trouble that is brewing already by the U.S. and intelligence operations in Ethiopia and Somalia. You see that? It's like it, it, it's already they're fomenting the uh, the coming civil war. There's, they're fomenting civil unrest in Ethiopia, in Somalia. Mm-hmm. This is unbelievable, man. No, exactly, and and they've re- re-inflamed the uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Army that yep. has started up violence again in the north. Um, these are provably proxies for the United States. Um, there was a, a conference call between State Department officials and the head of the, the TPLF not that long ago. That went public. Somebody leaked it, and they were basically just demonstrating that the TPLF were carrying out orders for the U.S. State Department, which is justifying a destabilization of why Ethiopia? Because Ethiopia is the only country of Africa never to have been colonized. They are building the biggest, uh, it's called the Grand Renaissance Dam Project, using Hamilton, the, the fundamentally most successful principles of Hamiltonian banking the, are what are is driving the success of Ethiopia's uh, construction of the Grand Renaissance Dam. It's a 6,500-megawatt uh, uh, dam, which also involves flood controls. It involves a whole bunch of other things that'll be used as an industrial driver of abundance, the creation of abundance and new economic corridors for all of Africa, including if only South Sudan, South Sudan especially, and also Egypt could get their, their shit together, because right now they're also being manipulated by Western technocrats that want to use them as a uh, a battering ram against Ethiopia's growth ambitions. So, that, you know, you got manipulators in all, all parts of the uh, the scene here. But despite that, Ethiopia has done such a, an amazing job that they didn't use this by going to another country asking for a loan. They didn't go to the IMF. They did not go to the World Bank. They did it themselves the way Lincoln funded the trans uh, the, the transcontinental railway through things like 520 bonds, um, bonds that mature in 5 to 20 years that the U.S. citizens can purchase directly that are tied to the construction of this, of this project. That's how they funded this. They had the Ethiopian people buying the Grand Renaissance bonds, which is what allowed for a new capital monet- uh, capital creation to occur, a new monetization to occur without having to go to any international company or nation for a loan. China has also been providing loans for rail, like the, the Addis Ababa-Djibouti rail, which will, will be extended in a variety of directions, was funded mostly by China. China has a military agreement with Ethiopia, as does Russia to train and also supply uh, support to protect all um, BRI-related infrastructure in Ethiopia. Obviously, terrorists are uh, targeting these zones for destabilization for obvious reasons. And again, to take a step back here, what people are treating as patchwork localized projects here and there in Africa are all integrated as part of the same thing. And this is a beautiful map that was made by the Cradle um, for an article that I had recently written, I loved what they did, but these are nine major lines going north and south and east and west. Most, most of them are high speed. Some of them are conventional standard gauge electrified rail. Point is that is what is being built up. That's the grand conception of what China and Russia are helping to build with India. And it's being funded increasingly things like this is part of the, what's called the, uh, Africa 2063 agenda that was put out in 19, uh, 2014. Um, Africa now has a, a free trade zone for the continent that takes down 95% of inter-African trade tariffs, making it much more easy for the flow of goods and people to move between the African countries. Up until now, it's been cheaper for most people in Africa to go to Europe first by plane and then from Europe back to whatever other country in Africa they want to visit, from let's say Niger to Chad. There's no roads, no railway that's that's built or paved between a lot of these countries. And that was a design of the empire to keep the the continent at odds with itself at war with itself and underdeveloped in the same way that they tried to create the keep the original 13 colonies of the united states at war with each other without any common uh free trade policy amongst the 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 individual states and without any roads or rail built between the states so that they would better be divided to be conquered that's been the policy for africa also just like the u.s the british empire always wanted the u.s to stay agricultural cash cropping not full spectrum, no industrial activity. That's what Adam Smith was all about, was basically telling them, telling the Americans that, no, you don't need industry. That's for the British to do. For you, you just do cash cropping and slaves. That's for you to do. 
Africa was told the same thing. You don't need full spectrum industries by the West for a long time. You just have resources and uh, you do that. You, you ex We exploit your resources, send it to port and ship it off to the Western consumer markets. That's what Henry Kissinger told Africa. That's what Maurice Strong told Africa. So China and Russia don't have those psychological misanthropic problems. They're helping to build that. There's already the most quick one being built right now is the Dakar Djibouti Railway. Um, there is the first high-speed rail network in Senegal from Dakar to um, I forget where, but it's about a thousand kilometers of high-speed rail, the first high-speed in uh, Africa that's been done. This is going to extend. China is building that. Um, there's several other points where they're already building pat like patches. It will extend it. It will connect across 10 countries all the way to Djibouti. And you could just see how obvious it would be to stretch this 26 kilometers into Arabia. Again, Arabia, Saudi Arabia has joined on as a dialogue partner of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They have submitted, um, they've openly, openly said they want to join the BRICS Plus. So has Turkey. Um, so has Iran, who has joined um, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and is moving ahead for the BRICS Plus. I, I don't know if they've done that yet. Argentina, too. And a lot of these countries, it's key in Saudi Arabia. I don't have a full map there. But a lot of these countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran are normalizing their relations after five, six years of no relations. They've reopened borders between Saudi Arabia and Iraq for the first time in 30 years. That just happened in 2020 after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, right? They just, they blocked their borders. That's now changed. Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia has also um, signed on a, with a whole bunch of economic treaties and cooperation agreements with Turkey, who has vying often competing interests or spheres of influence influence that they want. They've now worked together. Prince, Crown Prince uh, uh, bin Sultan visited Erdogan in Ankara just like a, a couple of weeks ago. They signed some amazing things. So you got this whole new dynamic, again, only because of the Russia-China alliance. It's premised on an idea of a re restored um, non-aligned movement. I know we're running out of time, so I'm not going to go through that, but that was basically the sub the substance of Sergei, uh, Sergei Lavrov's recent speech on the importance of Russia's involvement in the, the new 120 nation strong non-aligned movement, which is creating an alternative to the entire rules-based order and premised around not a worshiping of money, but of a new type of economy premised around a market basket of, of various currencies, not just the US dollar, which is obviously going to collapse soon. And instead, those currencies will be tied partially to digital currencies. And a lot of people are freaked out by that because they're like, oh, that's social credit. That's all bad. And I would say in response, it depends on what you're doing with the digital currency. A digital currency is just a digital currency. Um, it's like a knife is just a knife. It could do good or it could do bad. It depends on what is your nation's priorities and values such that the monetary system, which will be, which, which will have digital currencies, will be tied to killing and enslaving people or improving the quality of life and mental activity of people, which, which is it doing right. And people need to look first and foremost at function, purpose, design, and intent in, before they pass judgment on the, the type of central bank digital currencies of China or, or what we're hoping that Russia really moves forward on a much faster uh, degree. And also the idea of commodities. It's not just going to be like fiat uh, debt based or speculation. That's going to be determining the value of these currencies. What, as people like Glaziev has said, uh, Patrushev has said, many others have described this importance of having real productive commodities as the source of what gives the behavior of the money its vitality and what gives value to the money will be, you know, I think Glaziev last uh, talked about about 20 different commodities, both gold, silver, uh, wheat, copper, other things that all have even finished goods that will be selected, that will be able to have a, a tie the money system to a real world value. That's an important component. So all that to say, the fight is still on. There's obviously creeps and traders within the BRICS. There's fifth columnists and other Malthusians who have embedded themselves in the administration of the BRICS Development Bank and, and many other uh, so-called multipolar operations. But the point is, that there is a fight and a lot of people, they were quick to just see the bad and just brush the whole thing aside as if it's a, a, you know, controlled oppositions, that there is no real hope. There's no opposition to this depopulation, satanic one world government, new world order. There will be a new system. And like I said at the beginning, 
It will be based on real values. It's just, will those values be tied to the increase of the productive powers, the ability to support more people at a higher quality of life? That's natural law. That's the economy of nature. That is a, that is a system of science of nature. Or will it be based upon the reduction of the carbon footprints, the reduction of the ability to support life according to what these Malthusians in the spirit of Maury Strong actually want? And I won't go, I, I had some slides on the Bandung conference and and what Lavrov had uh, recently discussed with the non-aligned movement. We won't go through that today. But I'll say that for next time. You know what's funny, Matt? It's it's when the when these morons say the world is against Russia, the world is against China, the world, the world in blue that you see, folks, this highlight, that's the world they're referring to. Yeah. <laughs> the international order. The international rules-based order, right there, is these handful of countries highlighted in blue. Where you this have to purge for wood to stay warm. <laughs> exactly. Which is right now chopping wood to stay warm, waiting on blood, uh, bread lines, uh, e energy's not affordable, economies are imploding, they're totally insolvent, they're broke, they're poverty-stricken. And I think, it was, uh, I think it was Jonathan Hinckley, the guy over at the dive, he said it best. He said, we are witnessing the collapse of the third world. And he was not talking about the third world. He's talking about the West. Mm hmm that yeah. is a deep thing. We are witnessing the collapse of the third world, and here it is highlighted in blue. Yep. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for coming on with us, man, and sharing. And again, folks, you can check them out over at CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org, RisingTideFoundation.net. Make sure you go there, sign up, be a part of those weekly symposiums that him and his wife Cynthia run. Buy the books, folks. His books are vital. Get it. It is a life changer. And subscribe to his Substack. Get yourself up to speed. Get yourself educated. Hey, you got kids that are in school, whether they're you know high school or college age, they want to learn history. The, Matt's material is a great thing to throw at them. You got kids that are homeschooled, that are older, that want to learn about history. This is a gr get the book. It is a wonderful textbook study. On, on, on for these kids to get a really good grasp, it's an excellent resource. Matthew, thank you so much. With that being said, El Cuco, take it away. <laughs>